Welcome to Chromodiversity, a podcast for clinicians, therapists, and families about common genetic diversity in children and adults. I'm Elliot Pollack, founder of the Chromodiversity Foundation, and I'll be your host. The story you're about to hear, Growing Up With Michael, is still raw and could be triggering for some. If you're sensitive to disturbing content, you may wish to stop listening here. In this first episode of two, you'll hear a father's heartbreaking account of the loss of his son, Michael, diagnosed with an extra X at the age of 24, found dead earlier this year at the age of 37. Michael's father is Gary Gleesman, a highly respected senior healthcare executive who started his career as a registered nurse. Few people have made a bigger difference for thousands of families and individuals living with chromodiversity than Gary. From 2017 to 21, he was the chairman of AXIS, formerly called KSNA, the leading parent advocacy association for X and Y chromosome variations in the USA and Australia. I'm proud to say Gary is also a member of the Chromodiversity Foundation Global Advisory Board. The reason Gary has agreed to speak out is to convey a simple message, that the absence of systematic early detection, intervention, and support of common genetic differences comes at an unacceptably high cost to many other individuals and families around the world. In this episode, you'll hear how his son Michael was diagnosed with an extra X, what he was like growing up as a child, the challenges he faced as an adult, and the circumstances of his death. Next week's episode focuses on important sometimes brutally honest recommendations for parents and policymakers. Hello, Gary. Thank you for being here today. Glad I had an opportunity to uh, do this, Elliot. Happy to share our story with as many people as possible. How old was your son, Michael, when you first found out that he had a genetic difference and how did you find out? We did not receive a formal diagnosis about his Kleinfelder condition until he was 24. At the time, he was in a court-ordered rehab program for alcohol abuse and addiction, and he was doing well there. But then they discovered that he had taken money from the halfway house where he was living and the court placed him back in jail. His psychiatrist at the time was pretty confused at this impulsive behavior since he had been doing so well for the previous nine to 10 months. And actually, he was the one that suggested we get a genetic test for Kleinfelter syndrome, which then came back positive. So he was pretty old when we finally found out. And the previous 15 years, 17 years, we had been down uh, many different roads trying to figure out why he had so many challenges with different types of situations, primarily revolving around executive decision-making and that type of thing. What was Michael like? Great kid, right? Absolutely true. I mean, it speaks to the fact that they weren't picking up signals that looking in retrospect, you could see now. Uh, At those ages, he struggled with developing speech skills, and we had him enrolled in a speech program that basically got him caught up in about a year, which, you know, was great because then he was ready to pretty much enter school and do well. So, you know, he was happy, easy, cheerful kid, very uh, much involved with all the family functions. And as he continued to age through beginning school periods, first, second, third, fifth, sixth, seventh grade, he was pretty much right there with his peer group. He struggled with 
developing social relationships. He didn't read other people as well as his peer group did. And so he would become a target at times for being manipulated or being bullied. Kids do that at those ages. And so you don't think too much about it. It's just your kid's a little bit different than the rest of them, but everything else is working fine. So, you know, he was an easy kid to raise at those younger ages. As he continued to progress through school, he struggled at times with meeting some of the academic expectations. He did really well with anything art related. He was a very creative kid. We've got a number of walls in our house filled with his artwork from high school. He's got very, very high marks on that. He never felt like he had any real talent. So unfortunately, he didn't pursue it. And we didn't stimulate it much. He eventually turned that creativity and interest in cars, which most teenage boys, you know, certainly develop at some point. And he became a really an automotive paint restoration specialist. And he was an absolute master with that. He could take a beat up car and make it look like it had a $25,000 paint job and ended up developing his own business, working on exotic and high value cars to restore them to uh, you know top condition. Um, you know, he made it through becoming an Eagle Scout, which doesn't happen very often uh, in the in the scouting world. Less than five percent of scouts become eagles, and so he was he was pretty proud of that accomplishment. So, I mean, he he had interest in where he was able to take advantage of doing something with those interests. He excelled. The things that made it difficult is he continued to have difficulty with staying organized and managing his finances and taking care of his various medical conditions. It's the rest of the world that demanded that he become accomplished in everything, that things fell apart for him. In hindsight, would you say that some of the challenges he was having making executive decisions may have been due to the fact that he had a chromosomal difference? Oh, there's there's absolutely no question about it. I mean, one, one key element that virtually most health professionals are certainly aware of is that Kleinfelder syndrome guys don't produce testosterone. And consequently, when they enter puberty, their bodies are not producing a, a very necessary substance that has a lot to do with their emotional and psychological stability. So the fact that he was deprived of that particular chemical led him to eventually start to try and figure out how to self-treat it himself. And then that led to the addictive behavior using alcohol. And so there's no question that the fact that he was not diagnosed at a young age had a tremendous impact on his situation, you know, plus the fact that we lost all the opportunity for developmental support and developmental intervention uh, at critical ages where kids that are one, two, three, four, and five can really benefit from controlled intervention that is designed to help kind of build those executive skills. How did it make you feel when you found out? Well, certainly, you know, we were thankful. We finally had a diagnosis after years and years of searching for answers and many evaluations and treatments and medications. But that also made me pretty angry that it had taken 20 years to figure this out. And, and it's simply not unusual for Kleinfelder syndrome kids and families, often called the diagnostic odyssey. More than 95% of health professionals do not consider testing for chaos, even when they're presented with multiple common characteristics that can be part of the condition. And it's very, very frustrating. So much of the health professional world just simply doesn't have it on their list for screening. That's why 
almost 70% or more of Kleinfelder kids are not diagnosed until they're adults. You know, a lot of these kids just don't present with anything so obvious that would get the attention of a health professional saying, we really need to do some genetic testing on this kid. When you found out, what were you told? It's kind of ironic because I was personally acquainted with the director of genetics at our local university medical center and had worked with him in various capacities for a number of years. So we had immediate access to the source of diagnostic testing. And so I fully expected to be able to sit down and get more in-depth information from him after we received the actual diagnosis. I was pretty disappointed in the result. I mean, he met with me personally and brought in the papers they had in their offices on Kleinfelder syndrome. And basically, these were papers that were approximately 15 years old and just more or less talked about the inability for these guys to produce testosterone and that they should receive supplemental testosterone administration. He suggested I continue to work with psychiatrists and other mental health professionals to learn about behavior management that we were dealing with at the time. And that was pretty much it. I mean, he really didn't have any place to send me, to refer me, to help me get in touch with researchers. We were pretty much left on our own to find out more information that we needed. It's just amazing looking back now with one out of 600 male births, you know, that potentially have this condition. It's just, I I don't understand. I've not understood for the last 20 years why uh, the health professions have just not picked up on this better. What do you understand today about this genetic difference that's different from the information you had at the time? It's almost impossible to describe. And I I understand more current research has been done in the last, especially the last five, six, seven years. But all that was known in 08, see, other than maybe one specialized center uh, out in Denver, Colorado, is that his body didn't produce testosterone and he was not able to have kids. And then he might have some learning challenges and issues with being impulsive. What we know today is so much further beyond that. The research into neurobiological function, neurodevelopment, brain anatomy and function, the health challenges with metabolic syndrome and blood clots and potential cardiac and lung function and ADD and executive function. I mean, the list just goes on and on. And and not all of it's negative. There are many strengths associated with Kleinfelder syndrome that include things like creativity and curiosity and perseverance and kindness and social intelligence and fairness. There's just a lot of very positive things that can be emphasized with these guys uh, that they can bring on as their strengths. So if we would have known about this when he was younger and been able to provide the effective support he so badly needed, both medical and, and enabling and promoting his strengths, things would have been much, much, much different than what we, where we ended up, you know, at age 24 with the diagnosis. How did you end up becoming a leading advocate in the U.S. for Kleinfelters and the Association for X and Y Chromosome Variations? As I talked about, I discovered very early that the medical and educational professionals really didn't understand XXY. They had little information or support to provide. I was fortunate and discovered an advocacy organization in 2009 called KSNA, uh, which stood for Knowledge, Support, and Action, that seemed to have some resources that would help 
families and individuals, but they had very limited funding and just one part-time staff. But I became involved with their listserv, which was kind of the, the social media at the time that people would use to stay in contact with each other. And I met a number of very helpful families and individuals that shared their practical information and offered suggestions. I didn't understand why there wasn't more professional resources more accessible and resolved to kind of learn more about the condition and assist the group to develop more and better information. Those volunteer efforts eventually led to an invitation to join the board in 2012, and I was then appointed the board chair in 2017. I continued in that role until our son started having more serious health and personal challenges, and I had to switch my focus to that to help support him more. So I resigned the board chair position, but I still remain active in various board projects. And on the social media groups where I can help provide new research information for people. A few months ago, we were scheduled to speak, you and I, as we often do, about how to further our common cause, when I received an email from you with heartbreaking news. In the email you wrote, sorry to say, I won't be able to make this call. They found our son dead yesterday. What happened? Well, as I mentioned earlier, Michael really struggled with his self-treatment addictions. And we have attributed this to having Kleinfelders uh, as, as an influence and the fact that he never received adequate or effective treatment when he was younger. The mental health people tried a lot of different behavior meds, but they were not all aware that he was XXY, so none of them really worked. Michael later became seriously addicted to opiates after a two-month ICU hospitalization where he was kept on a ventilator and kidney dialysis and then kind of a semi-coma state for, for that period of time. We tried to explain those addictions and his problems with that, but the health professionals just pretty much ignored it. They were obsessed with keeping him in this coma state while he was on the ventilator. And then sadly, they later prescribed oxycodone for pain relief after his release that he quickly became addicted to. And additional rehab treatment programs didn't help. He eventually started using IV heroin and then buying counterfeit opiates on the street. Many of us know now these are often laced with fentanyl. He had several occasions where he was found unconscious and not breathing. Uh, we tried to convince him not to use when he was alone, but he just didn't fully understand the risk. Again, part of that executive decision-making skill, he just didn't think something bad would happen. After he was released from jail this past June, he moved back in with us and we thought things were better, but unfortunately, as we discovered, they weren't. And he had purchased more counterfeit drugs one day and used it when he was in his truck in a parking lot and died that same day. I'll add one additional thing to that that still makes me very angry today. During the six months he was in jail, he did not get one minute of rehab support. He was not allowed to attend any AA or NA meetings and had no mental health counseling. It was a completely wasted six months. And I still maintain the prison system contributed to his decision to continue using after he was released. They were simply only there to punish him. So, you know, it was just a sequence of events that culminated in, in this unnecessary premature death that could have been avoided from so many different ways, and it just simply wasn't.
his drug addiction started from the prescription by doctors right prescribing strong opiates that's absolutely true and and there's just so many ridiculous regulations within the system for instance nebraska where we live requires all physicians to report all medications they are prescribing for people but on the flip side they are not required to check the drug registry base to see if someone's obtaining drugs from multiple physicians so he quickly discovered he could get almost an unlimited supply of opiates from multiple physicians around the community and nobody would stop him so while they might not prescribe huge amounts at any single time if you're seeing six seven eight nine different physicians you can get as much as you want and so his inability to self-control and understand how much risk he was putting himself in he just didn't didn't make any good decisions about it once he knew he could make himself feel differently with these opiates the game was pretty much over at that point drug addiction problems in certainly in our state if not the entire country are looked at from a criminal lens they're basically punished but they're not rehabilitated and so the recidivism rate for people coming out of prison with drug related offenses is close to 70 or 80% because they get no effective intervention while they're in prison and then go right back to the same lifestyle they had that got them into prison in the first place the circumstances where uh you mix in a genetic condition that already struggles with mental health and behavior types of issues is just a perfect storm they're going to end up in prison and then not get any treatment and then put right back on the streets again to continue doing whatever it was they were doing that got them there in the in the first place the problem that we have is that the court systems will say they have programs to help people with minor drug offenses and even sometimes at the felony level drug offenses that will divert them from having to go to prison and that indeed happened with our son uh, it was with alcohol in the beginning that he was allowed to go into a court diversion program rather than go to jail uh the problem is that uh once they go through that program and he completed his successfully and did quite well for well, at least a year or so the fact if they if they have a relapse and start using again uh, and get themselves in trouble again they're denied entry back into those diversion programs so even though he was well qualified and would have done well in that diversion program the court system wouldn't allow him access back into it cuz he'd already been through it once which is just a ridiculous a ridiculous attitude to have because as so many people that work with people with addictions will tell you uh it can take sometimes 4 5 6 maybe 7 rehab experiences before something finally clicks with them to be able to help them move into a different lifestyle. So the fact that they're artificially prevented from being able to access that program just again sets them up for total defeat. Do you think there should be specific protections for people who have been diagnosed with extra chromosomes based on medical understanding? and contemporary understanding of what these differences may mean there's no question if you want to look for a program that has 
taken that attitude that seems to be doing quite well. There's a program in Australia called Section 32 that kind of requires the courts to consider people with genetic differences or disabilities that can be defined through medical diagnoses. The ability to uh, seek out and get different treatment rather than the standard, you're going to prison for six, nine, 12 months, years, whatever. There's an entire body of knowledge that has been produced by this program in Australia that they're having great success with. The challenge with Kleinfelders and some of these other genetic conditions is that the systems in the U.S., for instance, are designed to help courts work with people that have that meet certain criteria. So if your IQ is below 65 or you have other serious disabilities, the courts will find ways to be able to work with you that don't automatically just put you in prison. The problem with Kleinfelders and other genetic differences is that many of these kids don't meet those criteria. It's a broad phenotype, it's a broad spectrum, and some have serious problems, many do not have serious problems at all, and many have just a combination of things that make it difficult for them to work and function in the real world without some level of support, which could be very minimal, but nevertheless necessary. The courts just aren't there. They look at their definition, and if you don't meet their definition, you don't qualify. End of story. Thank you for listening to the first of two episodes with Gary Gleesman about growing up with Michael. As you can imagine, this was not an easy conversation to have. As you heard, the reason Gary agreed to speak out is to share a simple message, that systematic early detection, information, and intervention has the potential to change and save lives, and is long overdue. Next week, we will release the second half of our conversation, which includes important unvarnished recommendations for parents and policymakers, and concludes with a eulogy to Michael, found in his truck shortly before his death, as written by Michael himself. I hope you found this episode helpful. Please show your support by donating to our podcast today. With your help, we will ensure an easy listening experience so you can access engaging and authoritative information on common genetic diversity in children and adults, notified to you weekly in your inbox. Tune in next week for another conversation about growing up with chromodiversity, and have a wonderful day.